God is so good. I remember years ago, Nadine and I went to a conference, and uh, John Paul Jackson was was the main speaker at the conference, and we had a lot of friends there, and like the whole staff from John Paul Jackson's Streams and Ministries was at this event, and by this point, we had become pretty good friends with most of those staff members, and the, the meeting the night before was just, man, it was hot. The worship was awesome. The presence of God was intense. And everybody, we just had an amazing time. And so we're at breakfast the next morning, and <laughs> one guy says to the other, he says, man, it was really easy to prophesy last night. I was getting lots of revelation. And another guy looked at him and said, dude, in that atmosphere, a monkey could have prophesied in that room. <laughs> and that's how it is sometimes. It's a sense that the, the presence of the Lord is so manifest, it's, it's so tangible, there's, there's such an, uh, an increased awareness among his people of, of his nearness and of his activity and of the sound of his voice that it's as if he could speak to a donkey if he, if he needed to. And, and it kind of feels for me this morning, <clears throat> it reminds me of that a little bit, that it's kind of long in that vein. I feel like there's an awareness of God's presence this morning such that um, if we listen, we will hear. There are times, I've gone through seasons in my life where I have to be intentional. I need to be purposed. There's either stuff going on in me or stuff going on around me that if I'm not intentional, if I'm not purposed, <clears throat> it's hard for me to hear. I'm easily distracted. Then there are other times, it just, it's just a matter of listening. It's like, <clears throat> like the radio in my car. If I turn it on, something will be broadcast. And that's how it feels like God sometimes. If I just turn my radio on, he's got something to say. And I feel like this morning, uh, I just want you guys to know, I feel like if you turn your radio on, then you will hear God speak to you in one way, shape, form, or another. So do that, Lord. As it says in Scripture, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Speak to us today. Okay. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Galatians chapter 3. We have been working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as I've told you, it's far and away Paul's most passionate letter. He's fired up at the Galatians. And he's, he's fired up for a few reasons. Because they've abandoned the gospel of grace. And they've fallen into this, this temptation and this deceptive teaching to return back to the law. To return to the law and to return to the religious rules, regulations, and traditions of men. And so he's writing this letter uh, with the hope of challenging them uh, and steering them back to the path of truth. We could see the passion in his letter from verse 1 of chapter 3, where he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And I like you know, how J.B. Phillips kind of takes some of the uh, proper veneer <laughs> off of it and just kind of says it like it is. Phillips takes on verse 1 is this, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, <laughs> who saw Jesus Christ crucified so plainly, who has been casting a spell on you? He just, I think Phillips might have had a little bit of Brooklyn in him, you know, but yeah. And you can see his fiery challenge just a couple of verses later in verse 3. Are you so foolish after having 
After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Powerful verse. There are denominations around the world that this could be the message of God to them this very day. Oh, you dear idiots of... Fill in the blank. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And the sad and resounding answer is, yep, we're that stupid. That's exactly what we're doing. We've become sophisticated. We've become proper. We've become academic. And so we don't need these messy Holy Spirit things. We, we needed that to get started, but we're smarter now. Oh, sweet Lord Jesus. Any student, any mild student of church history will see this pattern repeated again and again and again. It's the pattern of the Galatians. They begin with the fire of the Spirit. And there's life on it. There's abundant life on it. And then man comes along and he wants to control it. And he wants to package it. And he wants to distribute it. And he wants to manage it. And he strangles the life out of it. And so what started as a move of God becomes organized, <laughs> becomes sophisticated, becomes respectable, and it dies a long, slow, painful death and drags people along with it, sometimes for centuries of lifelessness. Oh, dear God, I do not want to spend my life that way. In this third chapter of Paul's letter, he's writing to the Galatians, and he's using the example of Abraham to make his point. He's using specifically the example of Abraham's relationship with God, his friendship with God, his relationship of faith with God, his relationship of trust with God to make his point. And so we looked at verses, the, the beginning of that uh, use of Abraham as an example. We looked at verses 6 to 14 last week. We're going to pick up this morning in verse uh, 15. He's still using the example of Abraham to make his point. I got to tell you, I've really been enjoying Galatians. So, sometimes the Lord speaks to me and tells me what to share with you guys. And um, some, some months ago now, I really felt like he led me and said, preach on Galatians. I've never done a verse-by-verse -verse preaching series on Galatians before. And um, some, it, for me, it was just obedience. Okay, God, that's, these are your people. This is what you told me to serve them. I'll cook this food. And so I just want you to know, I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am, because I'm thoroughly enjoying the research and study into it. And this week's preparation was equally as enjoyable for me. So verse 15, this is what Paul writes. He says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. I like that he begins, verse 15, with the terminology brothers and sisters. Though he's fired up with them, he's not happy with them, he's not happy with the choices that they've made, he still considers them family. Right? These are still his brothers and still his sisters. And then he appeals to them using culturally common understanding. He's, he's using a sermon illustration. I'm trying to make my point. Let me use an illustration from everyday life to help make the point. Let me, let me make use of, the, of an analogy so that you guys can identify and better understand what I'm trying to communicate to you. 
So he appeals to a culturally current, common understanding. He says that even with covenants made between people, that a covenant stands firm once it's made. There are no amendments. It can't be added to. It can't be taken. Nothing can be taken from, from it. And so Paul's saying, if this is true among people, how much more so is it true in a divine covenant? Right? That makes sense? And Paul goes back to his example of Abraham. Verse 16. 16 to 18. He says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends upon the law, then there is no longer de- it is no longer dependent on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Well, let me unpack that for you. So Jewish believers who revered Abraham as their spiritual father, they've been, these Jewish believers, they've been following behind Paul and his message of grace, and they're they're trying to sow weeds among the wheat. They've been trying to convince the Galatians that there's an absolute requirement from their perspective that these Galatians return to the law of Moses. And Paul is telling them that there's a divine promise that precedes Moses and the law that was given to Moses. A divine, a divine promise given to Abraham and his seed, which Paul tells us here is Jesus. And what he's referring to is to the account of Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. So this is the, this is the text where... Um, Abraham demonstrates his willingness to obey God and to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God stops him. Once Abraham has shown his willingness to completely follow through with it, God prevents Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. Let's take a look at that for a second. I'll get back to Galatians. This is Galatians, excuse me, this is Genesis 22, 15 to 18. So here's, here's the scene, right? Abraham, this old man, has has brought his son up to the top of Mount Moriah, right? He's got wood for the fire. He's got his son strapped down on some stone, lifts the knife, and is ready to actually commit the act of sacrificing his son because God told him to do so. And in that moment, an angel appears and stops him from actually doing it. Could very well be the angel of the Lord. When the Old Testament uses the term the angel of the Lord, they're probably speaking about the Lord himself coming in spiritual form. Anyway, Genesis 22, 15 to 18. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. Can you see how the angel of the Lord is the Lord just in in that sentence? The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that you have done this that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities 
of their enemies and through your offspring all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The King James Version translates verse 18 this way, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. So today, as followers of Jesus, we know that all nations of the earth have been blessed for only one person, right? And that one person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, every, and the very one who in this text is, is foretold. That's what this whole event was about. The Ab- Abraham sacrificing Isaac was, a, was a, a picture of what was to come uh, in the Messiah. The very one who was foretold in this exact interaction between God, Abraham, and Isaac here on Mount Moriah. And God himself, God required of himself what he did not require from Abraham. He did not require of Abraham that Isaac would be killed. But Jesus came and laid down his life for us. And God's one and only son, life was sacrificed. And through that sacrifice, all of the earth is blessed. And so Paul is reminding them that God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham. And this promise, this is very important, this this relationship that God had with Abraham, it precedes the law. It supersedes the law. There was a previous engagement that cannot be, uh, arrangement that cannot be changed. That God's promise with Abraham wasn't changed by the law of Moses. That the promise with Abraham still stands. And this promise is fulfilled in Jesus. That's why he writes in verses 17 and 18. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Paul acknowledges, of course, the law came. The law of Moses came. It came 430 years later. But it wasn't a replacement for the promise. For the inheritance depends, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Okay, so we got the picture so far. He's telling them, guys, look, I know that you take this law of Moses thing very, very seriously. And I know that there have been some Jewish believers coming to the town of Galatia and telling you that it's, it's a requirement to fulfill that law and not simply live by a relationship of God based on faith because of his grace. And he's trying to explain to them why they're in error. And he's using language that they'll understand. The language of Abraham and Abraham's relationship uh, with God. He's saying, yes, there was the law, but before the law, a standard had already been set. And that standard was Abraham. And so, uh, the beginning part of verse 19 asks the next most obvious question. (laughs) Why then was the law given? Okay, if this is true... Now, why do we have this whole big thing with the law? Why, why was the law given at all? It's a good question. Let's look at Paul's answer. Verse 19b. Paul asks the question, then he answers it. All in the same verse, he says, It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. 
it, why was the law given? We had this promise with Abraham. Why 400 some odd years later was the law given? It was given because of transgressions. It was added because of sin. See, most of us, and this is true of me, we live life through an instant lens. It's got to happen right here, right now. And the immediate is really all that matters. We're not, especially in this day and age, we're not good at all at delayed gratification, right? We like everything instant. If I click on something on my computer and the page doesn't pop up instantly, if it takes three seconds, I'm already annoyed. Am I the only one? I have the world of information at my fingertips, but it took three seconds to show up. And so I'm aggravated by that, and I really am. <laughs> We see the, the world through the lens of the instant and the immediate, yet our God is eternal. He sees not only the big picture, picture, he sees the ultimate big picture. We live our lives as though we're looking at the two-minute trailer you know, for the next blockbuster movie. But God, he sees through the three-movie, extended version, director's cut, epic adventure. He sees the whole thing. We recently watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? You could, like, carve out a huge chunk of your life just watching that. Right? <laughs> Peter Jackson, the director, he had a big vision. Huge. Took years. That's how God sees things. He doesn't see things over years. He sees things over millennia. He, his perspective is eternal. And I think sometimes for us, it's a little bit hard to grasp that. We, can't, we don't think that way. Our lives don't last that long. There was an old, um, an old preacher named Bob Mumford. Maybe one of the first teachers that I would identify as a prophetic teacher. He was an amazing teacher of the word, but he had keen prophetic insights in his teaching gift that I've known few people in my journey that operated that way. And I remember once he challenged leaders. He says, you need to embrace what he called cathedral thinking. He said when, in the 1500s or earlier, when someone constructed a cathedral, he said the first thing they did is they planted the seeds that would become the trees that they would harvest to become the beams to make the roof on the cathedral. He said they built that cathedral knowing that it would be their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren that would see the work completed. That's very diff different from instant gratification, right? That's very different from the mindset that most of us live in. It's very different from me clicking on a page and getting annoyed when it doesn't show three seconds later. God, God's bigger than that. Right? He sees throughout generations and generations and generations. So God's standard, the law was set, the purpose of it, was a placeholder. Why was the law given? It was, be given, it was given because of transgressions. It was, begin, it was given because of sin. It was given as his standard to keep us from self-destruction. It was a placeholder. Why do I say that? Because it says in the text here, it was given until. It was given until. I love the word until. What does it mean? It means that there's a limit. The clock is running on it. The meter is about to go out. <laughs> the law was given until Jesus. 
The law was given according to tradition from angels to Moses on Mount Sinai until the promise came. And when Jesus came, even he didn't change the covenant of the law. To go back to, to Paul's example in verse 15, Jesus came and fulfilled the covenant. He completed the covenant so that the law with Moses was satisfied. Right? You can, you can uh, close the folder on that contract, put it in the filing cabinet. It's, both sides have been completely fulfilled. And we can go back to the original promise. Verse 20. <clears throat> a mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. You see, Moses needed a mediator between him and between himself and God. But we don't. Jesus himself is our mediator. Our God is one. The Father, Son, Spirit, perfectly one. Where the law was a two-party agreement brought about by mediators, salvation in Jesus, by grace, through faith, it's received by a promise. And now understand the difference. A promise depends on only one person. I promise you that I'll meet you at Starbucks at 4 o'clock on Thursday. And you can bet I'll be there probably a couple of minutes early <laughs> on Thursday. Even if you don't show up, I promise I'll be there Thursday at 4 o'clock. A mediated agreement depends upon two people. I'm going to pick up this side of the box and you're going to pick up that side of the box. And together we'll lift the box and we'll bring it somewhere. Now, I can hold up my end of the box, but if you don't hold up your end of the box, there's a really good chance that box isn't going anywhere. Do you see the difference? The difference between a mediated agreement, depending on two people, and a promise, depending on one. The weakness of the law, compared to the covenant that God made with Abraham, is this. Is that the law required our faithfulness. It required that we be faithful, that we hold up our end. But the promise, it's dependent upon God's faithfulness alone. And guys, that's good news. He always shows up. He always lifts up the box. <laughs> He's always there. Matter of fact, he emphatically tells us the scripture that he will never leave us or forsake us. He's really that good. A promise is much better than the covenant. So was the law evil? Of course it wasn't evil. <coughs> It was, it was from God, so it wasn't evil. It was, however, temporary. It was temporary, and it was insufficient in compared to the promise. Verse 21. Paul writes, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come from the law. So the law wasn't evil. And it wasn't opposed to the promise of God. It had a different function. It had a different purpose. The law didn't oppose Jesus. Jesus is the promise. Though the Pharisees misunderstood him that way. But neither could the law impart life. So the text tells us, for if, verse 21, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the law was not given. To impart life. It was given as a placeholder. 
until the one who calls himself the way, the truth, and the life came. And righteousness that did not come by the law came only through the promise. What does it mean to be righteous? It means being right with God. And that only comes through Christ. The problem with the law is its inability to give life or strength to, do, to those who desire to keep it. And that's the problem with us today when we try to live by the law. Work harder. Work harder, work harder, work harder. Give more. Give more time. Give more energy. Give more money. Right? If I read one chapter of the Bible a day, I could certainly read two. If I pray for 15 minutes, I could certainly pray for 25. You know, always raising the bar more, 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 more. And it doesn't satisfy. So the problem with the law is that it's incapable of giving us what it is we really need. The law of Moses did not bring life. This is what it does. It stated the command, it tells us to keep it, and it communicates us the consequences if we break the command. But it did not bring us to either life abundant or life eternal. That alone is found in the promise of Jesus. So what Paul's doing here with the Galatians is he's saying, guys, look, these are the two options in front of you. And I'm telling you, if you go back to the law, it's really crummy compared to the promise. It doesn't compare. Why would you do this, you idiots of Galatia? Why would you do this? Who has bewitched you? I'm laying before you the two options. Why would you go back to that when you could have this? Verse 22, but scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ may be given to those who believe. This is what commentator David Guzik says concerning verse 22. I find his, his commentary to be very helpful as I've been going through Galatians. I, I like this, what he says here about verse 22. Paul paints a picture of imprisonment. The bars of the cell are sin, keeping us confined. The scripture put us in a prison in the prison because it pointed out our sinful condition. So we sit imprisoned by sin. And the law can neither help us. And the, let me read that again. <clears throat> Paul paints a picture of imprisonment. The bars of the cell are sin, keeping us confined. The scripture put us in the prison because it pointed out our sinful condition. So we sit imprisoned by sin, and the law cannot help us. Because the law put us in prison. Paul's saying that the purpose of the law was to reveal sin, not to remove sin. What the, all the law did was point out the fact that we were lawbreakers. It's Jesus, the promise. He's the one who removes sin. He broke open the prison gates and he set the imprisoned free. He sets the prisons free. This is what Jesus said in his, in his own mission statement. When he began his ministry, his, one of his very first public statements, he goes to the synagogue and they hand him a scroll from Isaiah 61 to read. This is what happens in Luke chapter 4. He says, He, Jesus, went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handing, handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whew. Tell you what, how awesome is that? Makes me want to just kind of shout and get excited. Jesus was sent to, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He was sent to give freedom to those who've been imprisoned by their sinful behavior and who have been imprisoned by the law. I don't think they got it. When he read it to them that day, he was, he was absolutely blowing up their God box. He, he was like sticking a whole chunk of dynamite inside their God box and lit the fuse. When he told them that, he said, I'm going to blow up your whole system and we're going back to the promise. And they were clueless what he meant. So Jesus came to release us from the prison of the law and from the bondage of sin. Verses 23 to 25. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we may be justified by faith. Now this faith has also come. We are no longer under the, a guardian. So in the same way a captured criminal is in custody, Custody, custody of the law. The law was our, we were in custody under the law. It was our guardian. It was our jailer. But the righteous one has now come and he has justified us. He's made it just as if we never sinned. That's what justified means. We've received a royal pardon from the king. <laughs> and he has set us free from the prison of the law. And as Jesus says in John 8, 36, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. So you foolish Galatians, why would you want to go back to prison now that you've been set free? The prison gates are open. The bars have been removed. You are children of Abraham and heirs of the promise. Come on out and live. Live full. Live free. Paul sums up Chapter 3 with these final three verses, 26 to 29. So, these final four verses. So, in Christ Jesus, you who are children of God through faith, all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He's saying, guys, there was a promise made to Abraham. And now with the law fulfilled by the Messiah, by the only one who could fulfill it, we get to go back to the promise, to the original standard. And just like God said he would bless all of Abraham's descendants, you are the spiritual descendants of Abraham and heirs of that promise. I love how verse 26 begins with the word so. 
So, in light of all I've just said, in light of my carefully laid out, theological and historically accurate presentation, in light of the truth of the gospel, he's saying, Galatians, you too are heirs to this promise. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. Your religious upbringing matters nothing. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. Your social or economic, economic status means nothing. If you're male or female, gender plays no role in this. You are one in Christ. All of you. And you now belong to him. So Paul's words to the Galatians are my words to you this morning. I want you to know this. Your heirs are the promise. You, you are his. Each and every one of you are his. You belong. God loves you extravagantly. Even you. Yes, he loves you. Some of you are sitting there this morning, and when I say things like that, this is the tape that runs in your head. Yeah, right. Everybody else. <laughs> Everybody belongs except me. That's a lie. That's the lie of the enemy. He loves you. He loves exactly you. He loves specifically you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He has called you by name. And you're his. And you too have been set free. You are no longer imprisoned by religion. You have received a royal pardon. <laughs> You're heirs of the kingdom. Because God Almighty, the Lord of all the universe, is your father. Your own father. And so my heart for you this morning is that each of you would live fully free. That you would live in the fullness of of the freedom that's rightly yours in Christ Jesus. I think Paul's letter to the Galatians is as timely now as it was the day it was written. I think it is a message to the church today. and certainly a message to our church. So John, why don't you come back up? Let me just close the sermon time in a prayer, and then I'll open it up to see if anybody has... Any revelation you'd like to share before we go into some ministry time? So Lord, I pray for us today. I thank you for Paul's letter to the Galatians. I thank you, Lord, that the words of this letter have been preserved for us. Lord, I pray that the resounding truth in your word would go throughout all the churches around the world today. And that the very truth Paul proclaimed so passionately to the Galatians, that that message would be proclaimed to us as well. And Lord, I pray for us that you would set us free from our traditions, from our rituals. Set us free from anything, oh God, that hinders your life full and free among your people. Lord, we want you. We want all of you. We want nothing but you, Lord. So Lord, I pray that each of us would truly, fully, completely know the truth the truth of your word, the truth of your heart toward us, the truth of the freedom that's ours. 
That we would know the truth and that it would set us free. That we'd no longer live in prison, convinced of the fact that we are yours and that you love us. Write that on our hearts. Write that on our minds. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? So does anybody have a word of knowledge this morning you'd like to share?